Welcome back to Rockstock Channel. It is Tuesday, August 23rd. Uh, very privileged to have here John Miller of Cowan & Company. Uh, John, why don't you uh, just start out and, and describe what you do for Cowan, and then I'll come in and, and then kind of frame uh, where we want to go with this uh, conversation. Which... Howard, thanks for having me. I work for Cowan. Uh, Cowan's an integrated investment bank and, and broker dealer. I sit on the research side, uh, specifically within a group here in Washington, D.C. that covers policy, uh, everything regulatory, everything legislative that would affect the investment community. So my colleagues cover things from healthcare to general macro and defense. I'm in a, in a new seat covering a vertical around ESG and sustainability. Our view at Cowan is that as the ESG narrative begins to really focus on specific targets on a go-forward basis, including in the E-column, so things like decarbonization or penetration for electric vehicles or renewable power, to complete that investment thesis, the underlying regulatory and legislative base needs to change. And so for that to change, there has to be a change here in D.C. So we're covering all things related to that and, and critical minerals, lithium, certainly falls into that. The Inflation Reduction Act uh, was passed, and that follows the CHIPS Act, which is not really that relevant um, on this part of the supply chain uh, or the, from an EV perspective. But prior to that was the bipartisan infrastructure law. And in between that, there were um, the Defense Production Act, was given you know two separate dollops of 500 million each as it pertains to critical materials i think one was tied to a ukraine bill and the other was you know tied to the bipartisan infrastructure bill there's been a lot of press you know the stocks went up you know after this i, I said um you know mansion and schumer snapped uh victory from the jaws of defeat um when we met in phoenix you actually keynoted um the fast markets event. I think you were the first presenter on the first yep. day, but you gave a relatively bearish outlook. What happened? The, the, the Build Back Better Biden bill, which was meant to be kind of like $3 trillion, here we have something that's $380 billion. The fact that it kind of made the cut, like the, the, the size of the package, Build Back Better Biden, was reduced by 90%, but it really speaks to how much they prioritize EVs, you know, and climate or, or things that are consumptive of critical minerals. Why is that? I think the the point I was I was delivering during that conversation is there's a an ongoing disconnect between what this administration under President Biden wants to accomplish with, uh, broadly speaking, the energy transition, so that's electric power and and decarbonizing transportation, and what they're willing to really um, fight for on the ground when it comes to individual permits for projects moving forward. Um, at the macro level, this administration is 100% bought into the uh, Paris Agreement, which we've rejoined, uh, a 50% emissions reduction target by 2030, 50% um, light-duty vehicle penetration for EVs by 2030. Macro level, they're all in. When it comes to where this actually hits the ground and where shovels need to begin digging to extract the critical materials, there's still a disconnect 
disconnect and there's still a risk. And that's mainly around the permitting process itself, which has become bogged down in a, in a number of different directions, right? Some of that is an external lobby that's been uh, litigating. And some of that has been an internal problem with some of, some of the ways the agencies operate. And so we, we'll, I'm certain we'll get to this, but there is an opportunity in the next month in September for some real reform to the permitting process that simply wasn't on the table when we spoke a few weeks ago. I see it as two almost uh, parallel asks. One is decarbonize the economy, accelerate the energy transition, and then do it by bringing all those resources, all that activity, all that manufacturing back to the U.S., and that's difficult to do, right? Right now, the entire value chain for renewable power transportation has been moved towards lowest cost, um, towards economies that don't price emissions, and it's an externality, and that's all gone to China. So if we want to continue the acceleration and actually get panels and cars, we have to go to lowest cost. If we want to have the domestic side, we're going to have to make some changes to those value changes and, and the bills and the actions you've mentioned today are, are supportive of that. So 2021 uh, was the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, IIJA, or the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law. So it's sort of the first real cut at what this administration can do from a spending perspective to be supportive of that demand for these critical materials. And so in that space, there's there's more than $6 billion that will be coming over the next five years for battery processing, manufacturing, and recycling grants. To date, $1.8, just under $2 billion has been made available through what's called a funding opportunity announcement. So the Department of Energy is managing that. They put out this request. Companies can compete for that fund. Those funds are grants. Um, so that's you know a little bit less than a third, and the rest of that money will be coming over five years. Going forward into 2022, the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine really accelerated uh, what the executive office would do in the U.S. around the energy transition, and obviously materials are a big part of that. So we did see a defense production, a DPA announcement, a DPA's Defense Production Act. And so you mentioned two additional $500 million slugs, super helpful. Uh, the announcement around critical minerals was, it went about as far upstream as at that time the administration was really willing to do. So it was around processing, it was around efficiency gains, it was around engineering, sort of the, the, uh, the industrial and engineering opportunities around a mindset, not actually making making direct equity investments into mines. That might change going forward. And then now, really, since the end of July, uh, there was an agreement between Senator Manchin and Senator Schumer, which pushed forward what used to be called the Build Back Better Act, and now it's the Inflation Reduction Act, or Mr. Manchin's bill, whatever you kind of want to call it. I, I like your point. So the, the initial BBA, BBB was north of $3 trillion. The Inflation Reduction Act, about $370 billion for climate and energy. And, and vehicles, minerals, those are all, all part of it. So happy to unpack like the manufacturing elements or this, the clean vehicle credits, the commercial vehicle credit. But before we go into that, let me just kind of summarize the other two things you mentioned, which are the Defense Production Act, you know, $2,500 million, so that's a billion dollars. And then the these $6 billion of grants of which... 1.8 billion or so um, is has already been applied for. The, the 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 bipartisan infrastructure law is only for U.S. projects. The Defense Production Act, uh, as I understand it, can also be applied to Canadian and Australian and maybe a couple of other uh, countries who are deemed by the Defense Department. The DPA is a Defense Department thing. That the bipartisan infrastructure law, I think, that comes from the Department of Energy. Um, but the, the DPA, uh, you know, Canada is considered a domestic source. I, I speculate that there is some money and those are grants like free money potentially going to go to certain Canadian, U.S., maybe Australian 
projects, the extent that we see an announcement uh, by uh, the U.S. government and any one of those companies of receiving such free money, um, it, it, it will catalyze and people will realize that not only those companies, but funding is being made available from the United States. Or, and we may hear this year or in the next month or two, um, some awards uh, from yeah. those programs. Then the bazooka, right? Congress has, uh, you know, it's, there's a New York Times article that talks that the loan projects office is getting like a, num a $350 billion number. But I saw Jigger Shah on LinkedIn say that he's gotten an additional 40 or 50 billion on top of, you know, what he already had was 40 billion because he's been out there. And, and there's a number of companies like Lithium Americas and Piedmont and Ioneer who have publicly announced that they're applying for the, um, Mm -hmm. These uh, these are loans, though. These are low interest, long term loans. There's there's more money available, right? And also, if you could talk about embedded within that, our expansion of these investment tax credits, you know, through the 48C program, which has not gotten a lot of press, is not well understood, um, but is not a loan. It's essentially you know free money. Uh, DOE's loan program office is received significant. Um, extension on its funding capabilities through the Inflation Reduction Act. $350 billion in additional credit ability from LPO is, is huge, right? And it's also coming at a really unique time where LPO is finally staffed and ready to operate as a bank again, right? This is a program that goes way back to the Obama administration, um, got some money out in the, in the early time periods, and then ran into really strong political headwinds around Solyndra and kind of went into hibernation. The Trump administration didn't use it at all. It was basically shuttered. Biden spun it up again, brought in Jigar Shah to run this organization. And it's taken him, you know, a year, year and a half to staff and build the, the due diligence and project framework they released their first conditional loan guarantee the first loan guarantee in 10 years earlier this year so at the same time this the lpo is ready to do business again they're getting this huge increase of funding they've also spoken really uh eloquently about moving from funding programs that aren't commercial yet to m focusing for more on like deployment of large scale. So something as you know, straightforward as you know, acquiring the minerals, the processing or, or getting towards the battery manufacturing is going to be really in their alley going forward. And so there's a large amount of money to get that done. They had about an $80 billion pipeline of applications coming in, about $40 billion of authority. Now with that additional $350 billion on top of that, you know, that it's, it's going to move a lot faster and we'll see those announcements at, at a high rate. So that's on the loan or loan guarantee side. But to your point, yes, there will be, a, a, it is a loan, so you have to pay it back. Uh, the, the Inflation Reduction Act also really has all these manufacturing elements too. So there's two credits that are, that are in play, and you mentioned 48C. So this functions like an investment tax credit. It's called the Advanced Energy Product Credit. And basically for projects that qualify, if you're a qualified facility, you can get 30% uh, investment tax credit of the investment you make to build a new facility, right? And so that could be, you know, kind of that processing and up space for the critical materials, um, which, is, which is a big deal, right? That's 30% off the top if you're a qualifying facility. It is $10 billion capped for total allocation. The other credit that's in this space too as well is called 45X, and that's an advanced manufacturing production credit. And that can allow you to achieve 10% uh, of the cost for production of the actual mineral. So that goes up even up further upstream to the actual production of, of the mineral itself. There's no cap on that program. So uh, it, it's estimated that the, the total investment is going to be around $30 billion. Most of that's going to go for, for solar, but there's certainly a place to play for, for critical minerals and processing on top.
Could you get both the 48C and the 45X? No, you need to choose between an upfront 30% or the ongoing credit. There's still things to come on the implementation side. There's a very significant carrot. And what I'm focused here is like, there. I don't think there's that many sticks, right? But there's various carrots and some of the carrots are consumer driven, right? EV subsidies. And then there are others that are producer driven. And I've been much more interested and focused on the supply side, yeah. you know, incentives. So we haven't had supply side incentives. We've had EV subsidies, but here, um, a, if you have a billion dollar project, right? Or 500 million to build a lithium plant or a, a billion dollars to build a lithium plant. If you get a 30% tax credit, it's basically, then it's a you know, it's a 350 or a $700 million plant. I mean, that that's a very significant free money, um, you know, situation. We may hear on the grant side, but we may also hear on some of the companies that qualify for this, um, you know, coming up soon. And that's very much on purpose, right? The big part of this bill, again, there's those two parallel themes here. It's advancing the, the energy transition and doing it at home, right? So a, a lot, all the changes that we're seeing in the Inflation Reduction Act, these are the things that Senator Manchin has spoken about. This is really his bill and his concept, right? He's been here, he's been arguing that one, he doesn't think electric vehicles are necessarily right for his state and all environments. And two, he's concerned about a transition to electric vehicles because all that would mean is the US would now be geopolitically exposed to China as opposed to exporters of fossil fuels. Um, so he wants the this industry, okay, if you're gonna do that, let's let's, you know, put the make it happen, right? If you're if the industry's been saying we can do it's U.S. jobs, we can make this happen here. There's all these parameters to bring this home, and you're, and you're absolutely right. It, it it's all carrots, it's not sticks. That's also deliberate too, as well. That's how Mansion legislates. He does not like fees. Like he was very much against a fee for for utilities to show an emissions reductions on an annual basis, basically um, trying to <laughs> a backdoor way for a carbon price. He was very, very much against fees and negative structures. He likes carrots, right? Let's incentivize through tax policy for companies to go ahead and do something we want as opposed to penalize them for not doing. So we're seeing that all over the space. So it's it's across the value chain. It's not simply upstream. It's upstream. It's processing. It's manufacturing the battery. And then it's final assembly of the vehicle too as well and i've watched mansion for a while like our friends at benchmark minerals um you know when simon moores has been presenting in front of like it was was murkowski at the time when the republicans mm -hmm. were in power he was always like the number two the ranking member yep. now he's he's the guy so and that is like one of the most bipartisan committees that there is yep. right like, like this is one yep. you know <laughs> um area Definitely. where it's it's it not being reliant on china for critical minerals as wide bipartisan support compared to last year when they were talking about like uh on the ev subsidy side an extra credit right if you were union made right and mm -hmm. and, and the income thresholds for who would qualify it was like up to four hundred thousand or five hundred thousand in income you know, and, and the vehicles, you know, price tag was very high. As I've looked at what's actually made it into law, it sounds like mansions like, okay, we don't want to subsidize rich people. We don't want to subsidize luxury cars. And we don't want to subsidize buying imported materials from countries of, you know, foreign concern. Foreign entities of concern. Foreign yes. entities of concern. So, you know, there have been like I've been watching Twitter and a bunch of the Tesla people were like, oh, you, you know, they, they say they've expanded the credit, but they haven't expanded the credit. But the reality is Tesla has met their 200,000 you know, car threshold. Now they could sell unlimited amount of cars over 10 years 
as long as they have cars that are cheap enough um, and are sourcing material. So if, if, it, if they don't qualify in 23, 24, they're incentivized to qualify in 25, six, seven, eight. That 200,000 unit cap was extremely prohibitive. So the, the large OEMs that are actually producing EVs at scale and are the sink for the demand for, for the resources that we're talking about here, they, they, were, they were totally out. So this changes that. And all they need to do is, is not all they need to do is they need to restructure their value chain and supply chain. And if they want to achieve that credit, they can you know price vehicles into this market. So now we're still capped at $7,500 at the max, which is where we are now for the credit. It's two elements. There's a $3,750 critical mineral component and same value, $3,750 for, for battery component or requirements uh, if, if the battery is, is final assembly is done in, in, in North America, right? And North America is a change too as well. And before it had been US, so that excluded our, our partners in Canada and Mexico. So this is more reflective of the way the actual value chain is. The new credit, which is now called the clean vehicle credit, it does for the first time include caps around the MSRP, uh, which was not there before. This is reflective of politics. Right? Uh, I, the Republican caucus put together a strong narrative that the existing credit was only subsidizing affluent buyers to buy Teslas and and. Democrats were out of touch and they were, you know, pushing these vehicles that most Americans, most Americans don't even buy new cars. They, they buy, you know, secondary sales cars and an $80,000 car is well out of range for, for most Americans. And that, that connected with voters and that connected with the media. So the, the MSRP cap is responsive to that. So we can talk through that. There's different classes. So um, for SUVs, it's $80,000 for vans. It's eight, same price, $80,000. And for other, which is basically sedans is $55,000. And now there are significant means testing. Um, so basically for a married couple making more than $300,000, you will not be eligible for the credit, right? That's that that's very different than where we were before. The existing credit is, is open to anyone, no matter no matter what the earnings were. And it's even different than where the Build Back Better Act was last fall. So last fall started at $500,000 for married couples, but didn't exclude that family. It just basically began ratcheting down the value of the credit. So now it's binary instead of a reduced credit. So a, a lot was done around those politics. But again, it's open to GM, it's open to Tesla, it's open to you know Ford and VW, which will very quickly be tapped out of that $200,000 OEM cap. Achieving the credit um, is also much more challenging, right? I mean, we've mentioned a couple of times now that there is uh, a critical minerals requirement. So for vehicles sold under the new clean vehicle credit, 40% of the critical materials must come from the United States recycled or from a country we have a free trade agreement from. That's before January 1, 2020. 24, and then it begins to ratchet up. So after um, uh, December of 2026, it's, it reaches 80%. Um, and on the other side, there's also requirements for the value, the percentage value of the battery component. So for vehicles sold under the new credit before January 1st, 2024, it's 50%. And that ratchets up all the way to 100% by uh, January 1, 2029. I, I think overall, it, it it's directionally right. I mean, we're in a situation in EVs where there are long waiting lists for all sorts of vehicles. So why would you want to stimulate demand further? You have to stimulate supply, which goes to my earlier yeah. comments that there are loans and grants to help, you know, one, increase localized supply, but hopefully that also decreases the price of the batteries so that the EVs, uh, you know, will be cheaper so more people can qualify for them. The U.S. climate policy, both on the power and the transportation side, has been 
er uh, just extremely volatile. Erratic is the word I wanted to use. This introduces certainty, and that certainty is a little bit, the structure and the methodology is a little bit different than it exists now. And so the market will need to adjust to that. But having a 10-year outlook, not having your largest producers of electric vehicles totally capped out of a market, that's a that's a positive, right? And so the market will adjust to that. Long-term, these are all positives. In the short-term, there will need to be some adjustments that certain companies will need to make. And the value chain certainly will have to change too as well. But that was the objective, right? The objective was to move away from this lowest cost China-based model towards the United States and our you know friends and allies through these free trade agreement arrangements. A company like Albemarle, you know, is an is an American company, right? But they 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 produce out of Chile, which is a free mm -hmm. trade agreement country. They also um, produce, you know, partly in Australia, right? You know, but they ship rocks from Australia to China, and they convert those rocks into like a final product that ultimately then comes into. Um, you know, a Tesla in the US. So would that qualify that if the final processing is happening um, in China, but most of the other bits are, are happening from an, either an American company or from a free trade country, does it qualify, right? Like, like what, what is a, a foreign entity of concern? Yeah, so the, there's there's two, two components here. One is the the percentage that needs to be hit for critical minerals, the percentage needs to be hit for the battery value. That's sort of one element. Those ratchet up over time. And then there's an entirely other piece at play here. And right, and that's a, a blanket binary exclusion for foreign entities of concern. So that in the, the hypothetical of ore mined in Australia, uh, that is acceptable that makes that's perfectly eligible in the vehicle it would actually be beneficial and help towards that percentage that needs to be achieved if that or then goes to china for processing that would be problematic right that would enter that foreign likely enter that foreign entity concern depending on the the final processor in that country it would make that vehicle ineligible so there will have to be a shifting of of these value chains the processing um for sure uh anything around the battery manufacturing and the components that go into the battery manufacturing if, if they touch foreign entity concern that vehicle will not be eligible for the credit so there will be a shift there'll be a change in that example okay so in that example it's possible that you know albemarle could redirect some of its ore from australia into america and then everything would qualify or another uh, partner with an fta yep yeah okay so what about argentina you know is not a free trade agreement country whereas chile is and both countries have lithium and um Livent, for example, um, uh, imports from uh, Argentina to the United mm -hmm. States, right, to finish the product, right, and they also import to China. So China wouldn't work, but would um, would Livent's Argentine material qualify? You know, if it's further converted in the United States, or 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 would only a portion of it, like the the, the value add portion, qualify? How are those calculations made, you know? Yeah, so the value add component on the, on the battery side is going to be very interesting. Um, that, that's a white space, right? So the, the way policy is effectuated in the United States is there's legal text that moves through Congress, signed by the president, and then the various agencies opine and provide all the guidance around implementation. And there's a push-pull. Um, the Supreme Court has stepped in several times saying the agencies have gone too far in their interpretation. We just recently saw that in a case, West Virginia versus EPA, which touches this from a from a climate perspective. But the, the, the 
percentage value of that battery component, the, the DOE is going to provide guidance on that, hopefully by the end of the year. Again, that seems unlikely. Probably Q1 2023 is when we see that. What What's going to happen for Argentina? Uh, what we expect to see is a lot of pressure on uh, commerce, United States trade representative, to, to begin cranking out resource and critical material specific free trade announcements, right? It won't be a blanket across the country. Uh, there's no time to sort of manage all those different elements of all the imports, exports that come from it, but it'll be all targeted for specific items. And there'll probably be a number of these. Um, so Argentina is a good example. Indonesia is another example where those conversations will really accelerate. What we see or what we believe is less likely are waivers or exclusions. Um, this entire bill and framework is a compromise agreement between what Senator Manchin was, was willing to do and the Biden administration's, again, desire to decarbonize the economy and to do it in the U.S. If they issue a whole bunch of waivers, they're undermining that doing it in the U.S. process, right? So it seems unlikely they go down that route. More likely that they expand the the free trade agreement structure and use that as a tool, right, to to attract some other sort of foreign policy wins. Yeah, I mean, I could, like the free trade agreement, like why they pick that instead of like you know the EU. A number of the countries don't have free trade agreements, right? You know, so there are there are plenty of countries that are not of foreign concern that are also not free trade agreement countries, but there should be absolutely no reason that, and you're right, as a tool of foreign policy, why discriminate against Argentina? Like like China is, you know, um, trying to get Argentina on their side, right? Like in mm -hmm. America, like, so Argentina is kind of like in play, like certain countries are in play and others are kind of like left, you know, to, yep. to each other's camp. So you see the potential that like Argentina it's not a waiver, but just could be free trade agreement plus. <laughs> you know, yeah, a, nar a narrow free trade agreement focused on lithium or processed materials or, or so something good, to I mean, But if it actually has to be a free trade agreement, that's going to take time, you know, to, to yep. a formal agreement would take time to implement bilateral. You know, there may be a lot of that activity, but that's like where that falls in the priority. It'll be a lot easier if it was just like, can he executive order just adding Argentina or Indonesia? It's, there are the executive has lots of powers, and we we've seen that on the solar side, uh, the ability for the administration to step in and and it, one thing they could do that they've done on the solar side is the administration stepped in and declared an emergency, basically said that the the United States is unable to achieve domestically the number of panels it needs. We're going to declare an emergency and issue a two year waiver on tariffs for imports. So things like that can can be done, but again, it kind of undermines what the whole purpose of this bill is. The administration wants to be firm to show. Uh, manufacturers that they need to go ahead and make the investments necessary to do this domestically or with the free trade agreement countries. If they're if they're issuing a bunch of waivers, that again kind of unwinds that incentive. And if companies think that they can sort of lobby their way out of this, then that 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 could be a problem. I, you know, is that not going to happen? I, it's it's unclear. I think the what we're hearing around DC and from the various different trades and, and associations close to this is there's an expectation a lot of these vehicle a lot of vehicles beginning in, in January 1, 2023 aren't going to be eligible for this credit. And that was by design. So that that's kind of our base case. The subsidy is based on percentage, you know, of the value. But the value of lithium in the car is going to change from year to year. And therefore it may, one year it may qualify, one year it may not, like who's, it's very confusing and who's going to be the arbiter. Is that how it, it's all, works? it's all new, right? This is all new. And that's, that is a critical element of the implementation guidance. How are they going to determine the value 
versus you know adding to 100 percentage points of that battery right and is it a look back is it an average at the end of the day the oem is going to be the one responsible for making that showing really fundamentally this is a climate bill and and actually a point you made which i want to emphasize here is that the reason that uh evs have made it into this bill right this much more scaled down bill is because from an emissions point of view it's transport and power that are the biggest emitters right so to address those big emitters you have to tackle the transport problem and within the transport problem polluting trucks are much more polluting right that are used all the time than someone who's replacing you know uh you know a porsche 911 with a model s right yeah that's reality so there is a tax credit of of, or a a subsidy of forty thousand dollars for a heavy vehicle or whatever class vehicle that the semi, you know, so this is a significant incentive, I think, for Elon Musk to produce, you know, um, semis, you know, that Anheuser-Busch and other uh, major, um, you know, you know, fleet buyers of these trucks, you know, so it'd be interesting to see if that if that happened, you you agree on that score? Yeah, no, I absolutely. So um, I did I did take a take a second to try and look that up. So it looks like heavy duty vehicles are, are about five percent of the you know, fleet stock uh, or vehicle fleet stock in the U.S., but they they make up about a quarter percent of all transportation emissions, right? So they are highly emitting. Um, and, and yeah, so the, right now there is no. Uh, clean vehicle or EV credit for, for commercial fleet purchases. So the, the infrastructure or the inflation reduction act introduces a, a commercial clean vehicle credit, right? And if it has no internal combustion engine, if it's hundred percent electric vehicle, you can receive a, a 30% investment tax credit, the max value of, of $40,000. So that that's really meaningful um, for decarbonizing those fleets and, and fleet operators also think differently than retail consumers when when a fleet operate per, fleet operator purchases a vehicle they're not simply looking at the you know the sticker price at the dealer they're thinking about total cost of operation and that's where electric vehicles outperform right because you know prices of electricity it's less volatile than than diesel prices and so this is going to be a big push for not only heavy duty vehicles but also like the sort of last mile amazon type trucks right that are all over cities now because we're buying everything online and we get things delivered directly to our house there's already been some trans- traction there for clean vehicles this really will accelerate that what is mansion angling for you know with his yeah promise permitting reform right we're going to get something by september 30th and explain why yeah we'll get something or we'll get a government shutdown <laughs> so we'll see i guess that's still something but yeah so there's a one pager out from the mansion administration and it, it, it's hard not to to give this the priority it should to get mansion to make mention a yes vote on reconciliation, which became the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, there was this quid pro quo, right, where Senator uh, Senator Schumer, who's the majority leader, and Speaker Pelosi and the House agreed to bring to the floor a legislation around infrastructure permitting reform. And this is a long-term ask from, from Senator Manchin, and honestly, most Republicans too as well. And so in, in Manchin's mindset, this is natural gas, right? West Virginia sits on top of Marcellus. It sits on top of this huge hydrocarbon asset that he wants to get to market either as natural gas or as methane. He, he's, he just wants to get pipelines. Uh, there's a derivative benefit for all infrastructure in this. All infrastructure, including up, upstream 
oil and gas, solar, electricity, and critical minerals and mining, right? They have to go through, that, that touch in some way federal lands or affect federal waters, have to go through the National Environmental Protection Act or NEPA. So a good, great, best, clearest example here is that under Department of Interior, Bureau of Land Management or BLM implements a NEPA analysis generally resulting in an environmental impact statement for anything that needs to be done in federal lands out west. So what is what is Senator Manchin asking for? He wants to get pipelines done. So he wants to accelerate the NEPA EIS process and he wants to lower the litigation timeframes. Any project going through NEPA would benefit from that timeline, right? So the ask is for the environmental impact statement to take two years or less. Uh, currently, the average time is, is north of four years, right? So that slashes that in half. And also, it reduces the timeline around litigation. Basically, if if litigants generally on the environmental side are successful in saying a permit shouldn't be issued, the issuing agency is on a really, really tight time frame to turn around an alternative order. What happens now is it takes FERC which the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, four years to come up with a final EIS. It gets litigated for another three years, and then FERC sits on it for another two years before they reissue an order. So all in, your developer, you're waiting six years. It's extremely expensive, right? The economy has changed in six years. September is important. The United States government, um, I don't think we've been on a traditional budget really since back in the Obama administration. We operate on these short-term continuing resolutions to fund the government. The existing continual the existing CR times out September 30th. So there will be a must-pass piece of legislation to fund the government that needs to get done by September 30th. The deal between Manchin, Schumer, and Pelosi is to tack on this infrastructure permitting reform, again, adding those sort of statutory timelines to get the NEPA EIS done, to tack that on to the funding bill, and then basically dare both parties to say, okay, you're going to vote against this and shut down the government. It's going to be interesting. We, we've already seen some really... Uh, bearish comments from the Democrats, specifically on the progressive left, saying that, you know, we're not really interested in that. The 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 House Progressive Caucus has in the past proposed legislation that actually extends the timelines for NEPA, so going in the opposite direction. And so Manchin's going to need Republican votes, and it's unclear if Republicans are going to be interested in giving Democrats more wins. I've been very impressed with Manchin's political skill in th th this whole process. Fingers crossed, you know, by September 30th, he's going to get some permitting reform. Thank you so much, John. Really appreciate you. the conversation you. and your, yeah. uh, you know, a huge repository of information. So Thanks. to be continued.